Praise God. Thank the Lord for bringing us to another Sunday and um, bringing us through another week. Um, we thank God for his mercies that are new every morning. We don't take them for granted in any way. Um, grateful for his assistance. As Pastor Rob mentioned, we had Oster this week. And so, yeah, Caroline, all my days. Sufferation. <laughs> so they come in for three days and you just... You're like a soldier standing by your bed while they wipe the ledges and check everything. So um, thank the Lord for a, a... It was a positive experience, and we wait for the report. And so praise God thus far. We're here. And we're continuing again with our series, The Death of Death. Um, there's two more episodes after this. Um, Good Friday, and then the finale on Easter Sunday. Death defeated. And so today we're going to consider death defied. Death defied. We're going to be looking at some verses from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. And um, I want you to think about this. We understand that people's last words are generally going to be quite notable. And um, Often around this time, there is a focus on um, the last words that people may utter before they die. And um, we're going to consider some last words that really and truly are absolutely ludicrous if it wasn't for the person saying them. Absolutely ludicrous if it wasn't for the person saying them. Here are a few examples of some apparently famous last words um, of individuals as they prepare to leave this world. These are the last words of John Quincy Adams, who apparently is the sixth president of the United States. Um, this is the last of earth. I am content. That was it. And he went. This individual here, George Appel, was um, about to be executed um, in the electric chair. Well, gentlemen, you are about to see a baked Appel. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to find someone with humor in their final words. But obviously, he knew what was coming to him. He'd been waiting on it for a while. And so, in one way or another, he'd, he'd resolve to face it. So we see contentment, we see humor. Um, how about this? From a former Archbishop of Canterbury. Come, Lord <coughs> Jesus, come quickly. Finish in me the work that thou hast begun. Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. For thou hast redeemed me. O God of truth, save me. Thy servant, who hopes and confides in thee alone, let thy mercy, O Lord, be shown unto me. In thee I have I trusted. O Lord, let me not be confounded forever. Praise be to God. To the end. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
in, in all of the examples, I was looking to see if there were any who would give a promise, a promise in their last words. And, and the only one that I could find was this one. You be good. See you tomorrow. I love you. Now, it's interesting. See you tomorrow, although it's the, the last words of this individual. And it sounds almost overconfident, except to say it was the words of an African grey parrot and the words that were normally exchanged between the parrot and its owner as it was put into the cage for the night. The next morning it was found dead, and so obviously the parrot didn't realize that this was going to be its final words. <laughs> and so, for someone to make a promise in their final words would be, I mean, just, you know you're dying and you're making promises. I mean, at the best of times, they say that a promise is a comfort to a fool. We're fallen people, right? And yet, we're going to consider some words that not only grant a promise, but they grant a death-defying promise. A death-defying promise from a dying man. Look with me at Luke chapter 23. And um, then we'll pray. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father God, what you have done in Christ Jesus is in no uncertain terms beyond uniqueness. 
it is absolutely contrary to what we understand to be reasonable, normal, and sensible. Such is the greatness of your grace and power displayed in Christ. And this was not only the testimony of Christ in his living, in his life, but also in his death. Lord, I pray you will give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you will speak to our hearts and reveal yourself to us more fully today as we consider the truth of your word and just what it means for us. We thank you for you are good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there were a, a subtitle for my um, message today, it would be the gospel according to the thief on the cross. The gospel according to the thief on the cross. You see, the thief on the cross, as he's commonly known, is an individual who is often referred to when the question of baptism is raised. Do you have to be baptized to be a Christian, to be saved? And we will often refer to the thief on the cross. What about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, and yet Jesus promised him paradise. But there's so much more for us to learn from this thief's experience, especially as it relates to Christ's death-defying power, which fundamentally is the heart of the gospel. The gospel gives us a promise of death-defeated, death-defied. And so we meet this scene at a point where Jesus and his, um, well, let's say companions in death at least, um, are nailed to crosses. And so Jesus was in the center as we read, and there was one on either side. And at this point, there was no coming back from that. From that. There was no coming back for them. There was no coming down off the cross. They were in the process of dying, a sure and certain death. In fact, if someone was seen to be carrying their crossbeam through the streets, of a Roman city, it was regarded that that person was walking what we might call the Green Mile. They was on their way to certain execution from which there was no return. And so these individuals, including the Lord, had walked that walk and had been nailed to the cross and cross, the cross, the crucifixion being the kind of um, execution that it was, it was designed to be slow and painful. And so we might be thinking, well, they're nailed to the cross. Where did they even get energy, the presence of mind to be having a conversation? And yet, such was the nature of crucifixion that it was regarded as the most painful, torturous, drawn-out form of execution. And so we see Jesus accompanied 
by what is referred to here as two criminals. Often also referred to as two robbers or thieves. What do we know about these robbers? What do we know about these thieves? Well, they're called thieves or robbers, but there must have been something more to their status than them just being thieves. Because stealing wasn't a capital offense. No one was executed for stealing. Maybe we can find some clues in other associated texts of the period. So we see this written about Barabbas. We know that Jesus was taken by Pontius Pilate. He was put before the crowd. And Pontius Pilate said, what shall I do with this man? Furthermore, it is our custom at this time, because it was the time of the Passover, to release to you someone of your choice. Here's Jesus. We don't want him. We want Barabbas, who was another notorious criminal who was being held by Pilate at that time. And yet, in John 18, 40, Barabbas is referred to as a robber. Barabbas was a robber. But we recognize that Barabbas wasn't only a robber. Maybe that was the way the people viewed him. Maybe he was a kind of Robin Hood figure, people's champion. And so they weren't going to have a scathing view of him, maybe. And yet, we see in Mark 15, 7, that Barabbas has more of a status, more of a reputation than just being a robber. And among the rebels in prison, rebels in prison, yeah, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So Barabbas was one of these rebels who had committed murder in the insurrection, an uprising against the state. And there were a number of them in prison at the time, and Barabbas was numbered among them. This is the same Barabbas who was being held at the time of Jesus, who was being presented to the people as an alternative option to Jesus. In prison at the same time. His status as a murderer was affirmed in the book of Acts. When Peter was speaking and said, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So we kind of get a sense that actually these individuals known as robbers in the same way that Barabbas in certain instances was known as a robber were actually quite likely to be members of this rebel batch that were in prison and who were being held as murderous enemies of the state. Now, that would tend to more fit the picture of somebody who is going to be executed by crucifixion. Because somebody wasn't just casually, the, the Romans didn't invest that kind of effort just for petty crimes. In fact, 
we understand that not only were people who were considered to be a threat to the state individuals who would be executed by crucifixion, but it was also against the law for a Roman citizen to be executed by crucifixion. For these reasons, this heinous penalty was often imposed upon foreigners who were seen as threats to Roman rule. So when we consider the thief on the cross, let's get away from this kind of sentimental romantic notion that he was just some pickpocket who had picked just one too many pockets and now all of a sudden he finds himself on the cross. Like Oliver, yeah. please sir, can I have some more? No. This individual was what, what we might call today a bad man. He was an individual who was a, an enemy of the state, crusading his cause, and along with his compatriot, had been caught and given his just deserts. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. When you think about this individual as likely having the status of a murderer, a murderous enemy of the state, just begin to think about that as you regard Jesus' response to him. You know, sometimes we can find that in our mind we write certain individuals off. And we say, they're too far gone, they're too bad. There's no hope for them. The Lord can't reach them. Furthermore, sometimes we would have been in a place where we wrote ourselves off or even do write ourselves off. I've sinned one too many times, Lord. Can never be forgiven again. Surely you've forsaken me now. This just goes to testify that there is no one who is beyond the saving power of God's grace. And we must persist in prayer as it relates to those individuals, even with, among our families and loved ones, that we know are going to hell because they have not made a profession of faith in Christ. And yet we can feel as though it's been so long and they know my testimony and I've shared the gospel and they're so far gone. Will they ever be reached? Even in their last, the Lord is able to reach them. Now think about this, because look what Matthew says about these robbers. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So both the robbers, 
You know, it's robbers plural. There was only two there, so they couldn't really get that far wrong. Both of them were hurling abuse at Jesus. This is corroborated by Mark's account. Mark 15, 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So we see that initially both of these robbers were opposed to Christ. Both of these robbers were casting insults, or at the, at the very least, they were casting aspersions on Christ's character. They joined in and added their voice to that of the crowd who were calling doubts, mocking. Now, their call was to come down from the cross. To save us and save yourself. How did the thief get from being rebellious and repudiating to repentant and redeemed? I mean, that was his attitude as he was hung there on the cross. Why would he even have that motive to actually want to join in and abuse Christ? What had Jesus done to him? It wasn't because of Jesus that he was nailed to the cross. And herein we see the reality of the gospel. The gospel says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none good, no, not one. And his response, along with the other thief, was actually the response of every person with a sinful nature. The reality is that our natural inclination is not towards Christ, but against him. We come across so many people who we may have even been one of them ourselves and have all kinds of manner of things against Jesus when Jesus hasn't done anything to them. Jesus has done them no wrong. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You do these things. This is what Jesus walked in every day of his life. Every moment, the fullness of the Spirit, fruit in abundance. Sometimes I ask people when we're in evangelism, what, what is it exactly that you have against Jesus? What has he done to you? Why is it that you would actually consider it so like, repulsive to actually embrace what he has done for you? But this is the condition of the human heart. As we often say, the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. And so even though he's there 
the two of them dying, literally, with their last breath, using it to abuse the Son of God. There are those who have been known with their last words to do likewise. Individuals who, even in their final moments, as death takes hold of their being, they have found energy to abuse and curse and revile God. This is the height of human pride. And yet we recognize that there was a turning point. Now there was time for there to be a turning point because the Bible says that they were crucified at the third hour and Christ was certified dead at the ninth hour. So they were six hours on the cross. And there was something about the way in which that particular thief watched how Jesus died that began to change his life, what little of it he had left. It began to change his life as he watched how Jesus suffered. Listen, can I just encourage you? You might be going through all kind of manner of suffering right now in your life. Even to the point where you're like, Lord, do you even love me? Do you even hear my prayers? Why is it that I'd be going through this suffering? There's somebody who needs to see God's grace upon your life in your suffering. To recognize that what it looks like not to just be a fair weather friend of God. There's a certain way that even in our suffering, Christ is glorified greatly. Sometimes more so than in our good times. And we desire for our lives to be used for God's glory. We desire for, for, for our lives to, to, to bear witness to Christ and for people to see us and think of Jesus and, and be challenged and encouraged and blessed. But we've so bought into this notion of prosperity being the definition of blessing that we then want to repulse and re resist the very means that God is choosing for us to glorify him. You might be struggling in your singleness, saying, I wish that I was married. And if I was married, then I'd be able to really glorify the Lord and I'd have children and I'd be a parent and da 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 and the Lord says, you can glorify me right now in your singleness and allow other single unsaved people to recognize what a single saint looks like. You might be in your marriage, marriage saying, I wish I wasn't married. Because, you know, the reality is that single people, married people don't tend to have this conversation, really. Like... Single people are saying, yeah, I wish I was married. And married people saying, I wish I wasn't married. If only they, we could have that conversation together, yeah? We, we might get a little balance on both sides of the equation. Lord, this man, this woman, 
I would glorify you so much better without them. They're like a shackle around my neck. Not even my leg, you know, my neck. And the Lord says, this is the very means by which I have purpose for you to glorify me. Be strong and of good courage. There was something in Jesus' suffering and the way that he suffered. (laughs) Pastor Rob's called me now. Them, them kind of talk there. Listen. This, this is an itching ears teaching. You know? This is real talk. Amen. But there's something in the way Christ suffered that caused, caused this dying man to have his life changed. Maybe it was the peace in which Christ suffered. Maybe it was even his resistance to anesthetic as they offered him wine, which was known to be a a means of pain relief. And you'd say, why would the soldiers offer pain relief? Because it prolongs the agony. Wicked and bad. But no doubt there was this moment when... Contrary to what would normally be expected of criminals who have been crucified. Normally, criminals who had been crucified were supposed to confess their sins as they hung there on the cross. But instead, Jesus confessed the sins of his unjust judges. Furthermore, he didn't just confess them, but look what he said. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, these criminals, they knew Jesus' reputation. They knew that he only done good. He never done anything wrong. If anyone had a right to be cursing, why are you hanging me here? I've done absolutely nothing wrong. I'm an innocent man. God curse all of you. I should never be here. If anyone had the right to say that, it would be Jesus. And yet he cries out, Father, forgive them. If you have struggled to understand what grace means, here is the perfect example. Grace is God giving us the goodness we don't deserve. And here we see this enacted, personified, grace. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. A certain man would have said, they they well know what they're doing. They're just wicked. Wicked-hearted people. They know what they're doing. Look at the graciousness with which Jesus in his love towards sinful humanity would even... Give accommodation. They know not what they do. And there was a sense in which they knew what they were doing, but also that they didn't know what they didn't know that they was really killing the Son of God. And that this would be the means by which he would save the lost. 
Did they really understand that? And so after this, we see a turn, a, 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 a change, a transition in the life of that one thief. You see, at first, he was agreeing with the sentiments. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Or those who said, let him come down from the cross. Save himself and save us as well. This was the words of the other thief. It's interesting. Often people want the best for you only in as much as it's going to be good for them. <laughs> Let him save himself and us too. And yet, the criminals had a change of heart. And this is what repentance looks like. He went from being a rebellious thief to a repentant one. And this is the, the impact that God's grace has upon a person's heart. Look what he says. Do you not fear God? Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When you have recognition of God's power displayed, the right response is to be in awe, to be in trepidation. Not fear in terms of a fear of dread and doom, but the kind of fear you have when you stand next to Niagara Falls and you realize the sheer power of this force of nature. That awe, that respect, that deep reverence. This thief could evidently see that God was at work in Christ. In such a way that it was so evident, it caused him to be in awe and, and to have reverence in that moment. Even as a suffering sinner, he was captivated in awe of the suffering Savior. Do you not fear God? Don't you have reverence? Furthermore, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we're all up here dying. I mean, we're all up here dying. There aren't none of us in a better position than any other up here. We've all been condemned to death. And you still run in your mouth. And furthermore, you're running your mouth on this innocent guy. Not only does he recognize his state as being under condemnation, but he accepts it. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're getting our just desserts. The 
The scripture says that every man will proclaim his own innocence. If you've ever been, had anything to do with anyone in prison, ever been there, everyone proclaims their own innocence. No one's meant to be there. No one ever done it. Apart from the odd few. And yet at this point, rather than protesting, rather than declaring his cause and how he was seeking to do his best for the people, he accepted his condemnation. He accepted he was guilty. And this is a fundamental expression of what it means to repent. The word repent means to turn in the opposite direction. Some say it means to have a change of heart that results in a change of attitude, that results in a change in activity or action. You see, this thief had had a change of heart, and part of that was recognizing, even as he confessed his own sin, that he was deserving of the judgment he was receiving. He was guilty, and there is no one who can stand before God and hope to be saved without declaring our own guilt. That we are rightly deserving of judgment. If there is any sense in us that we are to, we're exempt, we're excused, we, don't have, we ought not to be judged, but we just want things to be better, we have missed the gospel. And our repentance is questionable. If you cannot agree with God... And that's what it means to confess, to agree with God. God's right, I'm wrong. Any situation, every situation, God is right and I'm wrong. And when I come into agreement with God, then I'm right. And so to recognize our guilt is to agree with God. I'm not on his level. I'm not acceptable to him. There is no reason why I should be exempt from his judgment because I am deserving of it. Then there is hope of salvation. Now, it, it ought not to stop there. This thief recognized that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He recognized on a deeper level not just the innocence, but maybe even the perfection of Christ. We're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he says that in, in the knowledge of, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. An innocent man with every reason to protest. These individuals likely to be Jewish individuals may have had knowledge of Deuteronomy 21-23. Clearly stating that anyone who is hanged is cursed by God. And that might be hanging by rope, being hung, crucifixion. And yet we see this individual 
recognized, even in accepting his own fate, his own sentence, that he was guilty. Now, there are many people who recognize that they're guilty. There are many people who recognize that, you know what, I'm not deserving, I'm not worthy, I should be judged, quite rightly so. Individuals who, like the reformer Martin Luther, struggled with the reality of their guilt before God. Struggled in such a way that they tried every means within their own power to relieve their conscience, but without success. And often we can do that, whoever we are. We recognize our guilt and we, we make a commitment to ourselves. I'm going to do better. And that in and of itself isn't wrong. But it is wrong when we seek to rely on that commitment to do better, even though we seldom do it. When we rely on that to be accepted by God again. Lord, I sinned and I shouldn't have done it, but I'm going to do better in the hope that the Lord will accept us. Mm. That's misplaced faith. That's a good intention, but it's misplaced. Because like the thief, what did he do? He called out on Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had a true revelation of who Jesus is. And he called on Jesus. Some translations say, Lord. Let's remember that in Hebrew, the name Jesus is Yeshua, which means savior or rescuer. What a name to call with your last breath. What a name to call in your dying moments. Rescuer. Rescuer. Savior. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus is the Savior. Now, this conversation would be actually ludicrous if it wasn't for who Jesus is. I mean, some would say that this thief had lost his mind the pain had got to him, he was deluded, and he was just trying to grasp, clutching at straws, trying to find any little bit of hope he could before he died. And so he just called out to this guy next to him and asked him to save him. It wouldn't make sense, they're both dying. Unless this thief truly had a revelation of who Jesus is. That... Rather than looking for someone else like a Roman soldier or someone to, to get him off the cross and spare his life, he looked to the person next to him who was also dying. Madness. But such is Jesus' death-defying power that Jesus could not only offer hope to a dying man. I mean, that somebody could call out to you. It's my last words. I am not long with this life. Save me. And you stand there helpless thinking, how can I save you? 
What can I do? The most, I know a man who can. That's the most I can say to you. Even an able-bodied, fully functioning, well person could not save a dying person necessarily. Especially in an eternal sense. And yet, this dying thief recognizes that Jesus can not only offer hope to him as a dying man, but he himself who is dying has evidently defied death. Jesus in that moment was dying alongside the thief. And yet the thief was assured that Jesus truly had the power to save him even though he was dying himself. This isn't like those war films when the bomb's gone off and they've been riddled with bullets and one soldier's there dying and he's bleeding out and his friends, don't worry, I've got you, I'll take care of you, I'll take care of your family. Knowing that his friend can't see the fact that he's dying himself, legs blown off, arms gone, and he's just offering him mere words of comfort, trying to make his passing easier. This isn't one of those moments. Jesus said to him in response, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, who knows all men's hearts, could recognize the repentance and the genuine faith. This individual who a short time ago was abusing him and insulting him along with the rest had now come to a place of genuine recognition and made a right response accordingly. And so there it was. The thief was able to leave this world, pass from this life, knowing that his eternity, his eternal destiny had been secured. Because he had put his faith in the one who holds life and death in the power of his hand. And this fundamentally is the essence of the gospel. Jesus is the only one who holds life and death and the power thereof. Jesus is the only one who can grant eternal life to a dying man. And that's great news for us. Jesus not only defied death for himself, but also for all who would believe in him. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. We may die tomorrow. We may die in 20 years, 30 years. It doesn't matter. The reality is that we're all dying. Some just quicker than others. But we're all dying. No one is set to remain in this life forever. 
And so let us be affirmed to have confidence in where true eternal life lies. In the one who has defied death, the Lord Jesus Christ, who demonstrated that. Even as he suffered as the Savior. Demonstrating such grace. That grace by which he said, Father, forgive them. Surely that must have inspired this thief that, you know what, I'm not too far gone. And it's not too late for the Savior to receive me and accept me. That I can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Despite the fact that I am justly being killed as a murderer. Be encouraged today. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter. As long as there is life, there is hope. Ask the thief on the cross. As long as there is life, there is hope. Even as a believer, when you look at that situation that feels like it's dead, it's over, from which there's no coming back, as long as there's life, there's hope. Jesus brings life out of deadly situations. I'm going to invite the team to come back now. As I challenge you, where is your faith? Where is your faith today? Is your faith in Christ? Will you, like the thief, allow yourself to trust Jesus? Will you recognize that his grace is enough for you? That you're not too far gone, that you're not too bad, that no situation is too dead? Are you willing to repent and take your bad? Recognize your wrong? Confess and agree with God? Let's stand. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.